It ain't cool being no jive turkey so close to Thanksgiving. Yeah. Sometimes we just feel like quitting, we still might. Why do we stand and fight, trying to get it right? Sometimes it's hard enough dealing with real life. We want to get off these tracks and fade like the final frame. Put up the house lights, walk into daylight, exposing our stage fright. But then we remember that November's November. Stocks rally into winter, like Dave and Sess, dropping that sprinter like the New York Knicks. On the fast break like a real Louis V, not one of those fakes. Tis the season for gains, now that the Fed looks done. And prices are stable, is that deflation? Not if you like your filet mignon medium rare off the grill with a tight Malbec. Throw me a beat. Microphone check. One, two, two, one. We gotta keep it fresh. It's the Thanksgiving edition of the Investopedia Express. Welcome back and welcome aboard and so grateful to have you with us as always and this train is going express as the major stock market index is capped off a third straight week of gains as treasury yields and the dollar kept on sliding. Cooling inflation has brought the temperature way down on the safety trade and stocks, especially tech stocks, are back in the driver's seat. The Nasdaq added 2.4% last week and is up close to 12% in just the past three weeks. The S&P 500 rose 2.2% last week. It's up nearly 10% since the end of October and the Dow climbed 1.9%, posting a 7.8% rise since this rally began. That 10% rally for the S&P 500, by the way, the best three-week stretch for the index since June of 2020 amid the crazy COVID rally of that spring. That seems like a long time ago. And investors, especially big institutional investors, are warming up to the notion that the U.S. economy might just settle into a soft landing after those 11 interest rate hikes and a trip up and down Inflation Mountain. According to B of A's latest global fund manager survey, 67% of portfolio managers believe that a soft landing for the economy, meaning no recession and a stabilization of prices, is the base case for next year. 82% expect lower inflation, lower interest rates, lower bond yields, and a weaker dollar. That's the recipe for solid stock market returns, and two-thirds of those fund managers are expecting that to happen as well, with price targets at around 4800 for the S&P 500. It's sitting at around 4500 right now, so that would be some serious upside. And that leads us straight into our big three for the week. Number one, as sentiment improves, money flows follow. And if you follow the money, you'll see that more than $23 billion flowed into stocks last week. It doesn't sound like a lot, but it's actually the second biggest weekly inflow into equities this year. Most of that went into large cap U.S. stocks, which experienced their biggest inflows since February of 2022. Money came out of U.S. treasuries on a net weekly basis for the first time since last February, and financial stocks saw their first weekly inflows since July. Materials, by the way, have seen inflows for the past five weeks. Those do not sound like defensive or recessionary trades, and there's still more than $5.5 trillion sitting in money market funds searching for higher ground. 5% is fine, but not if stocks are having more fun. Number two, this sentiment shift is largely predicated on investors' expectations of the Fed's next moves, and the Fed's next moves, as Jerome Powell keeps reminding us. Looking ahead, we will continue to take a data-dependent approach in determining the extent of additional policy firming that may be appropriate. Data dependent. Yeah, we know. And the data is really about inflation and the labor market, the Fed's dual mandates. The Fed wants inflation closer to 2%. And as of the latest CPI reading last week, it sits at about 3.2% right now, but it's accelerating at a much slower rate. The labor market is also cooling as only 150,000 jobs were added last month, and the unemployment rate is at 3.8%, right in the Fed's sweet spot of what it considers to be full employment. 
The thing is, inflation may not come down to 2% for a while. Consumers' expectations for inflation are 3.2% for the next 5 to 10 years, according to the Fed's latest survey, right where we are right now. Blame higher food prices, especially for meat, sugar, coffee, and bakery products, and blame shelter prices. Those continue to get more expensive month after month, but we may be coming to terms that those elevated prices are the new normal. And most investors don't think the Fed's going to hike rates again anytime soon to do anything about it. The Fed meets next on interest rates December 12th and 13th, and right now the CME's FedWatch tool overwhelmingly indicates that the Fed will pause at that meeting, pause again at the January 31st meeting, pause again in March, and then cut rates by 25 basis points on May 1st. After that, investors expect a series of rate cuts through November of 2025 that eventually bring the Fed funds rate to 3.8% two years from now. And number three, expectations for those lower interest rates have put the charge back into tech stocks in a big way. Last week, the S&P technology sector, the biggest sector in the S&P 500, accounting for 29% of its total market weight value, made a new all-time high. 26% of tech sector stocks hit a 52-week high. It's not just the Magnificent 7 anymore, but they do carry a lot of weight. XLK, the ETF that represents the S&P 500 tech sector, is up 47% in 2023 alone, and in the past 10 years, it's up 513%. Compare that to the S&P 500, which is up a little over 200% in the past 10 years, and you can see where the muscle is in this stock market. That's a 20% annualized return for the tech sector versus 12% for the overall market. As long-term investors, we have to ask ourselves if we think this trend is going to continue for the next decade. Will AI, Web3, robotics, quantum computing, and whatever else is looming on the technology horizon power another 10 years of 20% plus annual returns? It's unknowable, but it's tough to bet against tech, especially when interest rates are expected to head lower over the next few years. Lower rates are the spinach to tech's Popeye. Let's get set up for the week ahead, and it'll be a shortened trading week due to the Thanksgiving holiday here in the U.S., but we will have a healthy serving of corporate earnings to digest from widely held companies, including NVIDIA, Lowe's, Best Buy, Deere, and analog devices, just to name a few. This week also kicks off the official start to the holiday shopping season, but as we know, that really started a few weeks ago with Amazon's double prime day and preseason sales from Walmart and Target. Spending on holiday shopping is expected to climb about 3.4% this year from 2022, according to the National Retail Federation, that boils down to about $900 per person. Retailers like Target and Walmart have already warned of slowing sales and price-sensitive consumers, and with credit card debt at a record high and delinquencies on the rise, holiday sales could come in lower than expected. But I wouldn't bet on that. Betting against the American consumer is never a good idea. We know how to spend. The economic calendar will be light with a couple of purchasing manager index flash reports and the release of the minutes from the Fed and ECB's latest meetings on interest rates. They all pressed the pause button on rate hikes the last time these central banks met, and odds are they'll do it again in December. But we know it's all data dependent. Hey folks, it's Hunter Lewis, Editor-in-Chief of Food & Wine. This fall, we're launching the new Food & Wine Classic in Charleston with our partners at Southern Living and Travel and Leisure, and we want to see you there. This incredible three-day culinary experience will showcase the hospitality, food, drinks, and culture of one of our favorite cities in the country. Join us September 27th to 29th to learn more from iconic chefs, share a glass with innovative wine experts, and get to know Charleston with one-of-a-kind experiences curated by the experts at Food & Wine, Southern Living, and Travel and Leisure. Tickets are on sale now at foodandwine.com forward slash Charleston Classic. That's foodandwine.com forward slash Charleston Classic. 
see you down in Charleston. The past couple of years have warped many of our perceptions about retirement and the reasons why we save and invest. The pandemic made many of us value experiences more and rediscover who we want to be, where we want to be, and how we plan to get there. Our notions about what wealth means and what retirement looks like have also been evolving. I'm fascinated by these ideas, and I believe they will be the foundations on which we pursue our financial goals, how we interact with the financial services industry, and the future of financial advice. I recently spent time with three of the best and most influential financial advisors and planners in the industry today. Jamie Hopkins, who now runs the private wealth management business at Bryn Mawr Trust, Peter Lazaroff, the chief investment officer at PlanCorp, and Doug Bonaparte of Bonafide Wealth. They've all been on the Express before, and they are among the top 10 of the Investopedia 100, Investopedia's list of the most influential financial advisors in the country. Jamie Hopkins here, Senior Vice President of Private Wealth Management at Bryn Mawr Trust. Yeah, one of the things we got wrong about this as an industry, as a profession, is that we approach retirement very binary, very black and white. That if you didn't hit that magic number of a million dollars or two million dollars or whatever it was in your mind, you somehow failed. And I'm not going to call out the specific technology in our space, but you can envision it in your head where it all talks about success or failure for retirement. And retirement is not going to be success or failure. It's not binary. It's not if you had to spend 50 less dollars a month, you somehow failed retirement. That's not how Americans live. It's not how we operate. The reality is we adapt, we change, we modify things. And what we have to do a better job on as an industry, as a profession, is actually getting people to the point where we think about retirement as a, just a change in life, that we're going to adapt to it and helping people prepare for that, both from like a mindset and from a financial aspect, I think we've done a really poor job on. We help people save for retirement. We don't help people learn how to spend, and we really don't help people learned that like retirement is going to be adaptive. And what I mean by that is, you know, you're going to spend less money year two than maybe year three. And that's okay. It's not a 4% of your portfolio adjusted for inflation every year. Nobody spends like that, but that's how we show everything. So we're at a financial planning conference, the FPA's annual conference. A lot of financial planners here, a lot of coaches, a lot of people are tied to the industry. And a lot of what they're thinking about and talking about is how are they going to help their clients with these challenges? But also, how is this business of financial planning going to evolve over the next decade, given all the technology and given all the fact that either a lot of people don't believe that they can ever retire and plan for it, or the resources are there and they'll figure it out themselves? Yeah. And I'll tell a little bit of a story here real quick, kind of example of where I think this is moving. So five years ago when I joined Carson, people were like, oh, well, he'll probably roll out a retirement income software or something up front and because uh, I spent so much time in that space. And I didn't. And one of the reasons was I found everything to be wholly unimpressive. I didn't love it. I don't think it told a good story. I don't think it modeled things well. It was way too static. And it, it kind of told the same thing, that you're going to fail if you don't do X, Y, or Z. And I hate that approach. I actually think that for a lot of people, it causes a lot of stress. When you show those stress tests of portfolios and them running out of money in 20% of scenarios, I actually think that's a terrible way to communicate a plan and planning to somebody. So we're starting to see technology develop. What we're going to have, I mean, look, that was a limitation of tech. It was a limitation of the offerings. That is starting to change. You have, I mean, I can see the tech village from here. You've got places like Income Lab, which is a lot better. You've got Morningstar, which has added more features than it did before. But what we're going to see is technology like the income labs of the world that actually can show adaptive-based spending that is not binary success and failure. And that's going to be really important. I also think the other dynamic that is occurring out there in our space is 
kind of two things at once is we're not going to have enough financial planners and advisors to serve the market as it's served today. So we got to see firms and people adapt technology and serve more clients than they ever had before, or they're just going to end up underserved. And that's one of the big things that, you know, I think it's CFP and FPA wants to talk about how do we grow this profession, get it bigger. Fundamentally, it's not going to grow. I have no belief it's going to grow. It's going to be smaller in 10 years than it is today. doesn't mean the dollars and number of people we serve will be, but the number of professionals in this business is going to shrink over the next decade. And so how do we leverage technology and AI and other solutions to be able to serve more people efficiently with less workers in the profession? In this industry, a lot of people are talking about peak 65, right? 2024 being the year that the most Americans turn 65, the traditional retirement age. A couple things. A lot of people are working way beyond 65. We're actually living a lot longer than we used to live. So that period of not earning that regular income is extending and everything costs more with whether it's health insurance premiums or just inflation in general. So when you look at an event like a peak 65 and then you look at the industry as it is today, what does the future hold? Yeah. So I don't worry a lot about that date. So the interesting thing is that date's kind of meaningless to me in the sense that the problems with retirement don't occur at 65. Most of our financial problems with retirement occur at 80, 85, 87. The real problem is 20 years away. Now, the planning work needs to be done today. But the reason that that's a problem is inflation isn't really a today problem. And I know that sounds weird because people feel the burden of inflation daily when they have to go buy new things. Inflation is a 30-year problem. With high inflation in the last couple of years, we have permanently increased the cost for retirees of retirement, even if they're retiring next year, even if they're retiring yesterday. That is a big challenge, but it's not today. The impact of that is 25 years from today on a portfolio that those people start running out of money. The impact is they don't have long-term care plans in place. I don't think we have a retirement crisis in this country, but I do think we have a long-term care crisis. I think individuals have retirement crises because they just don't have enough money to live a comfortable life. But I think as a country, we adapt to retirement. I think people find ways to work more. We cut back expenditures. There's a lot of things people can do to get by. It doesn't mean they're living their best retirement, but I worry a lot about the long-term care crisis that's coming. We don't have enough people that it can actually take care of these. Families got smaller, care got too expensive, not enough facilities are being built. We don't have enough healthcare professionals in that space. That is a problem that I just don't see a good solution for. The government hasn't stepped into it. And the private industry has basically said they can't figure out how to make it affordable to actually deal with the issue. All right. For the folks that are out there, call them in their 40s or 50s right now, doubting that they're ever going to be able to retire or hit that magic number. Give us one or two pieces of advice. Yeah. So for people in the 40s or 50s, I'll give two pieces of advice for retirement. One is learn how to treat spending from your assets as a good thing. And that sounds really weird, but I think people need to learn how to do that throughout the course of their working years. So I've actually suggested this. Uh, we've kicked it around with some advisors. I have never really put it in practice, but should we have a year in your life where maybe you're putting 20 grand into your retirement portfolio, but we actually take a distribution that year and we learn how to spend it. So we're kind of keeping your savings flat, but you understand what a distribution looks like. You understand what a portfolio looks like when it doesn't just go up every year because you sent money into it. What does it look like to take money out? And actually to tell yourself that it's okay to see that and feel it. We as humans, right, we do things based off the experiences and knowledge that we have. So if we go all the way to retirement and we never experience taking distributions or spending money, then we're not going to know how to do that in retirement. And then what we see is a lot of retirees 
look at spending down their portfolio as a loss and it's painful, then they choose not to do it. The second one is don't overly self-insure in life. That doesn't mean that you need to go buy insurance policies. What I mean by that is what a lot of Americans do as they approach retirement is we self-insure every risk, meaning longevity risk. We don't go find a way to take or mitigate some of that risk. We hold on to our assets. We don't get long-term care insurance or a long-term care plan in place. So we hold on to assets. And what happens there is you have a lot of stress because every day, the totality of your investment portfolio is not there for that day. You are self-insuring and holding those assets for a 30-year time period. So you have no real liquidity. You can't spend that money safely because if you start spending it, you're actually pulling away from those risks that you're going to face in 20, 30 years. And what I see with that is just, it's very stressful, right? It adds a lot of mental anguish to retirees where they're the ones checking in on their account every day because they are providing both their current income and basically acting as an insurance company for themselves, which adds a lot of stress. Yeah, great point. Knowing how to spend it and actually being realistic about what that actually means to your wealth. People think it's the end, you know, the beginning of the end. It actually is the smart strategic way to think about how you're going to spend your time and how much it costs to be you and how much you're going to actually need to spend to make that possible. Such good advice. Best wishes on the new gig. And we look forward to talking to you again soon, Jamie. Well, thank you for having me on. I always appreciate it. And great to see you out here at FBA. Good to be here. I am Peter Lazaroff, Chief Investment Officer at PlantCorp. So good to see you, my friend, one of the Investopedia 100, perennially, year after year. Peter, what kinds of questions are you hearing through your clients and through the advisors that you work with? So there's a couple that come to mind, some of which have been popping up pretty routinely. They're not that specific to this year. For example, it seems like people are always wondering, hey, when is the right time to invest this large amount of cash? You know, maybe they got a bonus or they sold a business or they liquidated some of their equity compensation and they always want to know, like, what's the right time to get in? And Caleb, you and I know that mathematically speaking, the best way to do it is just to do it all at once, do a lump sum investment. But behaviorally, that can be difficult. Uh, people are dealing with regret and the literature on regret will tell you that that feeling is stronger when you can clearly see the alternative path. And so when you look at investing and you decide to invest all at once and the market goes down, you see that so clearly and the regret is going to be strong. And so some people want a dollar cost average into that. So that's one conversation that for whatever reason is popping up quite a bit right now, but it's pretty regular. The other thing that seems to be coming up is that with yields so high, we do have some clients asking the question, should I be holding cash instead of bonds? Why would I own a diversified bond fund with a duration of six or seven when it's yielding less than cash? And like any sort of asset class investing, there's, you know, cash is an asset class within fixed income. Different asset classes win over different periods. And yes, cash is winning right now. But on a, let's say, let's just talk about three-month treasuries to keep it simple. If we're trying to lock in, say, a 5.5% yield, well, at the end of three months, if yields are lower than 5.5%, you won't actually earn that 5.5% over the course of a year. And I'm not saying that will happen, but at some point it will. Yeah, that's and, the, the headline number gets people's attention, but you got to think about duration and how long you're actually going to hold for. I do feel like people are saying, well, rates have to go down eventually. I don't know if they have to go down. They could. People always say rates have to go up or they have to go down. Nobody ever talks about them staying the same. I feel like that's a wildly under-discussed issue where I think the idea of interest rates staying the same longer 
it's pretty reasonable, but you know, that should bonds go into cash conversations pretty regular. And we talk about reinvestment risk. We talk about some of the benefits of being in a diversified bond fund rather than cash. And then just reminding our clients, why do you own bonds in the first place? It's for diversification. And the second that you start chasing return, it doesn't really matter what asset class you're in, you're going to eventually get burned. And you would have to know the exact right moment to get in and out. A lot of people would argue that in fixed income, if you're timing from cash to bonds, it's not as severe as missing out on the upside of, say, stocks. Totally true. But it's still market timing. And man, cash is like a drug where once you are in cash, it can be paralyzing to get people out of cash. Anytime I've ever witnessed anybody go to cash for any reason, they struggle so hard about getting in at the right moment, regardless of the asset class they're getting back into. Right. There's something about looking in your banking account and seeing the same balance day after day that feels more comfortable versus looking at a stock ticker or looking at your portfolio performance, especially in a year like last or in the last few weeks. You've seen these surveys, whether it's Gallup or others that talk about, you know, for younger people, what do they think is the best long-term investment that's going to pay them back the most? And they get the choices of real estate, stocks, bonds, cash, gold, crypto. Most people choose real estate because it is tangible. You can go touch your house. You yep. can go you know, walk in the front door. You can mow the lawn, whereas you're not watching it go up and down on a ticker every day. What do you think is the best long-term investment for young people? Undoubtedly, it's stocks to me. When I see those surveys that show particularly that younger people don't see that, I do get worried. It's a lot of why I'm so passionate about creating content, about disseminating that work, about making sure people understand that that's the way to create wealth. And it's not to say that you can't create wealth through real estate, but think about the difference between something like buying a total world index fund versus buying one house. That's a single geographic bet on one neighborhood, in one city, in one country. And it's just not that diversified. It could work out for you. And the long-term data suggests that net of like the maintenance costs that you put into a house that you're maybe barely keeping up with inflation. So I don't think of something where I have to put money into it to keep up with inflation as an investment. I mean, I think of a house as a use asset. If you're buying real estate as an investment, it's just not that diversified. And you should recognize that historically, you know, stocks are risky and that is the cost of higher compensation. They are less tangible. I do get that. That's sometimes why I enjoy seeing people who maintain an individual stock portfolio to the side. I, you'll often hear me say that, hey, individual stocks are really risky and dangerous. That can be true. But if you're just carving out a small piece of your portfolio to kind of express yourself and get a little more tangible with something that otherwise wouldn't feel that way, I'm a little more in favor of it. Gives you a chance to learn about it, do your own research, make some mistakes, but don't make it with 50% of your (laughs) net worth. Make it with less than 5%, and it's a great way to learn. It's a great way to keep this education journey going, something you're so good at doing. Peter Lazaroff, so good to see you, my friend. Thanks for spending some time with us. Pleasure as always, Caleb. Douglas Bonaparte, President, Bonafide Wealth. Doug, what does the word wealth actually mean to you? For me, it's about time and getting to use your time however you want. When you are wealthy, you don't need to answer to anyone when it comes to how you are going to spend your time. Retirement is a construct of the industry that you and I both work in, you on the advisory side and me on the media side. 
But it's also changed in a lot of ways, I think, over time. It was pitched to us as one thing, but I think it means something different to different people. You see a lot of younger professionals in your practice. What do you think it means to them and what does it mean to you on the advice side? Yeah, it still goes back to time. I grew up in the retirement capital of the world, so I guess I'm a de facto authority. That's Boca Raton. And I watched my own grandparents. I lived down the street for them. Classic retirement. They would wake up, play golf, go to the deli, sleep by what, like five, six o'clock, wake up early, do it all over again, play with the grandkids. I had a wonderful experience with them. And being a millennial, I was like, huh, yeah, I can't imagine our retirement being like that. And then I had kids and I'm like, wow, that sounds really good. I'd love to absolutely do nothing and just chill like all day. So maybe grandma and grandpa had it figured out. But somewhere along the way, we turned retirement into financial independence. And that was largely driven because we just don't have the same social safety net that my grandfather did, right? Served in the army, got a pension there, you know, worked his whole life, got a pension there, saved up money, was able to move to Boca and, and chill. A lot of that stuff doesn't exist, not only for millennials, but baby boomers, Gen X, and certainly on down to Gen Z and whatever my kids are, Alpha, I think it was this. So what's that mean? We have to rethink this, right? We have to rethink what this means. And for a lot of clients, this is about... How do we maximize our time? We might not have the luxury of being able to fully stop working at that age, whatever it may be. Let's go with 65, that classic default. But what if you're doing something you really love or something that fulfills you and brings in some dough or supplements with the sa what savings and whatever social safety net is there, call it social security. So you got to have a more dynamic approach to this now, right? It's not going to be just one thing. They had it much more simplistic. There's beauty to that. And they, my grandparents, now it's not as beautiful, right? It's a little bit of a jigsaw puzzle that we need to figure out all the more reason why you have to pay attention to this. You have to be financially educated. It comes back to that. When things were more simple, when there were less products, less people selling you stuff, less social media, you could keep your eye on the prize, I think, a little bit better. You could stay focused. It's very distracting out there. We're even changing the name of retirement for, to financial independence. Great. We just confused people on that one, right? So welcome to the industry. But that's where the focus needs to be. How do you solve the jigsaw puzzle for today's retirement? Sounds like that's also the new challenge or the more clear challenge for financial advisors like yourself, right? Because not everybody's retirement or personal finance situation is the same. That's why we call it personal finance. But I also feel like the dynamics changed a lot where thinking about experience, thinking about how you spend your time and how you spend down your assets is kind of a bigger part of the picture. Absolutely. Take college education, for example. When I think about this for my kids, why am I talking about college education? Because think about the cost of sending kids to college these days, or what will that cost be when I send my kids to college? Should I be paying for that, or should I be focused on my own financial independence? I'm a product of student loan debt. You know, so is my wife. We get it. Would we make different decisions? Probably. Are we like, oh, no, never again, no debt? No, I just think it's a tool that should be used differently than how we used it. And a bunch of other ways to fund their education, should they even be doing that, assuming that's what's right for them? Who knows what the labor market's going to look like? But again, the central point I'm making is about, huh, how do we think about these decisions now in terms of what used to be, you have to go to college, you have to get that degree, you know, we're going to spend the money on doing that, even if it means we have to work another 10, 15, 20 years. I don't think this is a selfish act. I think this is a, huh, what's the reality when it comes to how do we get to this goal of... I don't want to be working for the rest of my life. I'm willing to work maybe part-time 
or maybe not at all, but I want the options and I want to be able to know how to solve for whatever path it is I'm going to go down. And here we're just using college, you know, education for your children as one example, because it's a huge expense typically. Yeah. When we talk about now the investing part of it, the saving and investing part of it used to be, you know, pretty straightforward. And maybe it still kind of is, but 60-40 was kind of the rule. Maybe you barbell that and you expand it and contract it as you get older and you get a little bit more conservative. But it feels like things have changed. ZERP, the zero interest rate policy is gone, right? We're going to believe in living in this higher for longer rate environment for who knows how long. But it also just feels like that dynamics or the foundations of investing the way at least that I grew up with it and you were trained in it have changed a little bit. Do you feel that in your practice? And are you taking some steps towards helping your clients understand that and change the way they think about saving and investing for the future? Yeah, I think uh, more of it's the same than really not. And I think there's just more external forces and distraction and noise and dangling carrots out there than ever before to make one think that you really need to change the formula or the recipe. And I'm not here saying everyone should go pick up a 60-40 portfolio and you know hang on to that forever. You have the dawn of new asset classes like crypto you know, coming into the place. And this isn't, hey, dive into that either. This is that is an indication of how much things like the the birth of a new when have you seen the birth of a new asset class i've never seen it i would argue my father's never seen that you maybe have seen new financial products so that does make that you know claim of are things different is it different this time a little bit it's it's hard to say it's not so we're working on our next book, which won't be out for quite some time right now called The Merge, where we're examining the power dynamics between couples and relationships and money, something no one's really dived into. We want people to be seen and heard when it comes to how the role of money plays in their relationships. It should be no surprise that a lot of relationships, the majority of them don't work out because of financial issues and money. And yeah, it's shocker. Not, yeah. And it's not a scarcity thing. It's a being heard and seen thing, which is pretty deep. So we're writing the joint account over on Beehive, which not only answers questions every other week, I'm the guy reading, or excuse me, answering reader questions, but we're diving into some of these issues and these dynamics in terms of how couples view their own identities with money and then bring them together to create one household identity. The stuff needs to be talked about. The role of money in your life and relationship is inescapable. It is forever. You don't win at the game of money. You have to play it forever. And if you can't communicate and if you can't collaborate and you can't be open and check in and know those foundations that drive the mechanics of your financial life as a household, you're not going to do as well as you would like. Yeah. And with the right partner and the right transparency and communication, there's untold limits about what you can do. Love the fact that you're doing it. And finally, we have the right people who are helping us answer those questions. We're going to get her on this show as well. Doug Bonaparte, thanks so much for coming back on The Express. Thanks, guys. It's terminology time, time for us to get smart with the investing and finance term we need to know this week. And this week's term comes to us from Doug McMillan. He's the CEO of Walmart, just the world's biggest retailer and someone who knows a thing or two about market economics. Doug suggests deflation this week. And no, he didn't DM us on the gram with that suggestion. He brought it up on Walmart's earnings call last week. McMillan said, quote, in the U.S., we may be managing through a period of deflation in the months to come. While that would put more unit pressure on us, we welcome it because it's better for our customers, end quote. So in honor of Doug and the good people at Walmart, let's break down deflation since we have a feeling we're going to be hearing a lot about it in the next couple of months. 
According to our favorite website, deflation is the general decline of the price level of goods and services, the opposite of inflation, of course. Deflation is usually associated with a contraction in the supply of money and credit, but prices can also fall due to increased productivity and technological improvements. Now, deflation is very different from disinflation, which is lower prices but still a positive inflation rate. And while most consumers think they would prefer outright deflation, falling prices and declining inflation, it doesn't always taste so good when it's happening. Historically, deflation tends to come with declining wages, mounting debt problems, and a recession. So pockets of deflation are good, but in order to get that soft landing that those portfolio managers are hoping for, disinflation might be more our tempo going forward. Thanks for joining us this week, as always, and a very special thanks to all of you on this Thanksgiving week. We are grateful to you for riding on the Express each and every week, and special thanks also to Jamie, Peter, and Doug for sharing their expertise and their perspectives with us once again. I've learned so much from all of them, and you can share in their knowledge by following them on their socials. We'll link to those and all the reports we cited on the show in today's show notes. Grab those wherever you ride the Express, and a happy Thanksgiving to all who celebrate. Turkey prices, by the way, cheaper than last year. There's your deflation right there. And we'll talk again a little further on down the line.